It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Hello and welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who understand the difference between mRNA and DNA, even if their understanding is just that they're different letters. Yeah. My name Hope is. everybody. Yeah, I mean, my name is Karen Ernst. I'm the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Nathan Boonstra. I'm a general pediatrician here in Des Moines, Iowa at Blank Trans Hospital and chair of our state immunization coalition, Iowa Immunizes. Yay. Okay. (laughs) I'm a big fan of Iowa Immunizes. Yeah, we're a big fan of you too. And we were just um, in person together last Mm -hmm. month. It was very exciting. I know. I've got a picture of you eating a cup of meat. Yeah, that was the most delicious, like, what were they, like, uh, beef tips or something? Short ribs. Yeah. Rather than have just a plate of food, I'm like, I want a mug of these short ribs. They were super good. They were Mm -hmm. last minute addition, too. So I'm glad you liked those. Good job. Yeah, I don't know what uh, what impact you had on the decisions, but the, the snack where it was all Minnesota foods. And snacks. That was kind of fun. Yeah, that but was. I posted this. I'll tell you what. I posted this on Twitter. Everybody, check your Halloween candy up in Minnesota because I had one of those nut goodies and it was filled with zebra mussels. And I know that <laughs> those are an invasive species. And uh, I, I don't. You know, I was almost going to call your your department of uh, of uh, wildlife and let them know. Yeah, well, the DNR know. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure the DNR listens, so it's good. Yeah. Good. Okay, well, we actually both have the same around the web. And so we're going to do something a little fun with that. Um, We're going to play this video and react to it in real time. So let me, I just have to get the video. We're going to actually say, okay, stop, or will we get sued if we do that? Yeah, let's not say, okay, stop. What Um, did we, we've done this before. What did we say? um, It was, it was hold the, or stop the presses. Okay. Just don't say okay before it or we'll be in trouble. I am at the Twitter account of one Mr. Tucker Carlson, who on Wednesday evening shared uh, some misinformation about an upcoming CDC ACIP meeting claiming... Let's see. Let's let's go exactly to his claim. His claim was that the CDC is about to add the COVID vaccine to the childhood immunization schedule, which would make the vax mandatory for kids to attend school. The CDC quote replied, quote retweeted this, saying Thursday, CDC's Independent Advisory Committee, ACIP, will vote on an updated childhood immunization schedule. States establish vaccine requirements for children, not ACIP or CDC. And the key thing, of course, to know about this is that what the CDC voted on was adding the COVID vaccine to the Vaccines for Children program. The COVID vaccine is not going to be bought up by the federal government for forever. It's not going to be offered to free for the general public for forever. You're going to have to get it through your insurance company. And for children who do not have insurance, they rely on the Vaccines for Children program. 
want to bring no. you now an update that we think is important on a story we told you about last night. The CDC Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices was on the verge of adding the COVID vaccine to the childhood immunization schedule. That vote is scheduled for tomorrow. Now, as we said, if that vote passes, children will be forced to take the shot, the shot they do not need, no scientific basis for acquiring it, and the shot that could pause. Where should we start? <laughs> I guess we'll start with the fact that there is, in fact, a very good scientific basis for uh, kids to get this vaccine. All right. So, and this, we've all, we've said this a bunch of times, the risk to kids is lower than it is for adults, but it's still significant. And it's comparable to the other vaccines that are on the schedule. We've lost, I want to say stats are last time I looked were up in the 1700s or so in the United States for pediatric deaths. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Putting that in perspective, like we used to lose 500 kids a year to measles vaccine yeah. or to measles. Exactly. And that vaccine was never questioned about whether or not we needed it. Right. And, you know, other vaccines, certainly all of the vaccines that we have on the schedule are super important, but many of them have death rates that are comparable, right? And we put them on the schedule. So there is a very good reason for them to be on. The other thing that's worth mentioning, I mean, we're going to revisit this, but it's not forcing anyone to get anything. Putting it on the schedule is not forcing anyone to get anything. We're going to get into that more in a little bit, I think. Okay, let's keep going. They have to take that shot in order to be educated in the United States in a public school. Stop. Well, in response to our segment. There's already exemptions. Like almost every state has exemptions for vaccines, either from uh, philosophical or, and or religious exemptions that you can get. And only a few states have, I mean, all states have medical exemptions. Only a few states have only medical exemptions. So it's already in virtually every state not going to be required for education. And can we also just talk about how most states have a process of adding vaccines yeah. to their requirements? Mm -hmm. um, and, and often the process is multi-year mm -hmm. and that a lot of vaccines never make that threshold. For example, the flu vaccine, I don't think is required in any state um, beyond childcare. Yep, it's so, not required in any state for kindergarten through 12, even though it's an infectious disease that rips through schools. And I, for one, think it absolutely should be required every year for all K through 12 students that don't have a contraindication to getting it. But that's another that's another video we can talk about. Yeah, we, we'd have to fund our school nurses better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to mention that like for uh, in Iowa, I was part of uh, a group that met with our previous governor and talked about the legislation that was coming through to add the meningitis shot to the routine, the, to the requirements for seventh and 12th grade uh, in Iowa. That was part of legislation that had to be signed by the governor. This is not like a school district up and goes, oh yeah, we're gonna just start requiring this for our schools. That's not happening. Exactly. The CDC complained on Twitter. They claimed that states and not the CDC established vaccine requirements for school children. But like so Stop. much else that we are <laughs> not complaining. All right. The, the tweet that they said was very factual. Thursday, we did this. States jobs are to determine vaccine. Uh, we can all complain about Tucker Carlson. Complaining sounds a lot different and is perfectly justified if CDC wants to do that. What he's doing right now is definitely complaining. Uh, yes. We have heard from the CDC and it pains us to say this, but it's true. Like so much else they have told us over the last two years. I don't think it pains them <laughs> to say it. <laughs> Look at the pain on his face. He's not pained. They're lying. And they know they're lying. 
More than a dozen states follow the CDC's immunization schedule to set vaccination requirements, not suggestions, requirements. Okay. Yeah, you're not even getting your, uh, your talking points. They're not even bombastic enough. Every state uses them as a guideline. It's basically states are not going to add a vaccine to the schedule if the CDC is not saying kids should get this vaccine. That's the way it's used as guidelines. They're not going to just make up their own schedules and add random vaccines that the CDC hasn't put on their schedule. You know, most states are not going to add something before it's recommended by the vaccine. But they're not, as we've talked about with flu, HPV, a bunch of other vaccines, they're, they're not a recommendation or being put on the schedule is not like, uh, oh, yeah, now it's going to go to all the states and they're pretty much just going to rubber stamp and put it on. That's just not how it works for states. For children to be educated. For example, the Virginia Department of Health states that, quote, vaccines must be administered in accordance with the CDC schedule. So I've just pulled up the Virginia Department of Health and they uh, require the the DTAP, diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, the HIB, the Haemophilus influenza B, Hep A, Hep B, they do require HPV as of July 1st, 2021, which was how many years after it was recommended? Mm -hmm. They require MMR. Yeah. As of 2021, they require the meningococcal vaccine, which is how many years after that was recommended. The pneumococcal vaccine is only for children less than five years old. The polio vaccine, the rotavirus vaccine, and the varicella vaccine. You know what's missing there, Nathan? Hmm. Influenza. Is Influenza. So when Tucker says vaccines must be administered in accordance with the harmonized schedule of the CDC, that doesn't mean that automatically when the CDC recommends something, it, it's required in Virginia. Yeah, a lot of this language is talking about not that you have to require all the vaccines, but that you require the doses that you're supposed to get. It, again, you're not making up your own vaccine schedule. You're saying if we're going to require whooping cough vaccine, we need this many vaccines because CDC says this is the right amount of doses of this vaccine. And a lot of these quotes that he's going to be quoting from are the same thing. They're basically saying use these as the guidelines for making the for deciding on what vaccines are required for school, not follow exactly what's recommended every vaccine. Right. So I won't fact check him on every single state, but he's going to go through a full <laughs> few states. Same thing applies. I'll put the state requirements in the show notes. The state of Massachusetts says, quote, no student shall attend a preschool, elementary school or secondary school program without a certificate certificate of immunization documenting that a child has been successfully immunized in accordance with a schedule that was, quote, developed in accordance with the recommendations of the CDC's advisory panel. Tennessee says its immunization requirement quote, follow the current schedule from the CDC. New Jersey, Vermont, Ohio say virtually the same thing. We could go on. The point is the CDC. Oh, could. Yeah, we could have gone on too. <laughs> he will. <laughs> he's going to go on. Don't worry. Yeah, he's also, he's still not pained. He <laughs> sets the standard and then it becomes yes. required across the country. And of course they know. That. Can you imagine that experts in a field are setting a standard of care, Nathan? Yeah, yeah. That's the big thing. His big argument here is how dare the CDC recommend va this vaccine knowing full well that that will make people follow that advice and get this vaccine. People might listen to the CDC if they make their recommendations. That's 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 too much. Cuckoo bananas. That's overreach. 
Of course they know that. If they know anything, they know that. So we <laughs> called the CDC and asked a simple question. Do you deny that once the COVID vaccine is added to the childhood immunization schedule, many schools and states will require it based on your recommendation? And of course they know that's true. We caught them lying, so they didn't even bother to respond to us because apparently we're not American citizens and don't deserve a response. And also he was talking to somebody at an Arby's. <laughs> Sir, this is an Arby's. <laughs> oh, I have to say, if he, when the media calls the CDC, they get the communications office. Yeah. And it is a very large bureaucracy, <laughs> and it's going to get pinged around for about a week. So, yeah. and, and, and he knows that. <laughs> if there's one thing he knows, it's that, Karen. It, it pains me to say it, <laughs> but he knows that. Does not enhance your faith. At all. So the, the big thing here to mention is that actually, if you go to that original clip, because uh, he's talking with what's his name, McCary, mm -hmm. and what's actually spoken in the clip is accurate in terms of at least the part where they talk about what the recommendation will do. Like, I think the guest does say, like, this will, you know, this doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be required, but states will use this as guidelines. It's like, that's accurate. Fine. It's the tweet and the headlines and the Chiron going across that all said CDC voting to make this mandatory. That is completely wrong. And that is exactly what the CDC was responding to when they made their tweet. The other problem with his original segment, the actual, the real problem with the original yeah. segment was that his claim was that children are dying from this oh, vaccine yeah. Yeah. and that kids don't need the vaccine. And those, those are blatant lies. Yes, absolutely. And I'm seeing a lot online of just people just proclaiming children are dying from this vaccine. Yep. And you're like, they're not though. The, nope. They are not. They're not going in the hospital either. Who was going in the hospital? Kids with COVID yeah. were going in the hospital. I mean, the one, and will. the one known possible side effect is myocarditis and pericarditis. Yep, which is still far outweighed by the risks of COVID and is focused largely in the older teens and younger adult males. That's right. We're yeah. not seeing a signal in the under 12s no. for myocarditis. Uh, the vaccine is, is extremely safe and far better to be, to, far better to encounter COVID when you're immunized than unimmunized. Absolutely. And I just want to end with a little bit of talking about some of Tucker Carlson's and his network's top advertisers include, well, I mean, one of the top ones is MyPillow, but <laughs> they, they include Procter & Gamble, Pfizer, GlaxoSmithKline, Abbott, um, and, and Novartis, along with, you know, General Motors, Progressive, Allstate, Liberty Mutual, Weight Watchers, and Amazon. So maybe it's time to ask those companies, so many of which have a vested stake in public health and in, you know, people not dying. Uh, why, why are they funding blatant lies meant yeah, to scare people about vaccines? Yeah, I got no answer there. All right. Well, I'll just, I'll leave that to all of our listeners to answer. But in the meantime, when we come back, we will talk to Melissa Moore, who is the chief scientific officer at Moderna. And we are going to be talking today about mRNA vaccines and the future of mRNA vaccines and what they can do and how they're going to change our lives.
and I would like to welcome Melissa Moore, who is the Chief Scientific Officer Emeritus at Moderna and is sort of an expert in mRNA vaccines. So we are really thrilled to have you here. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Now, I just want to make clear for our listeners that uh, Voices for Vaccines does not take any pharmaceutical funding at all. Moderna is not one of our funders. And so they are just here in their sort of expertise role to talk about the science. And that is why we have the scientific officer here with us. So thank you so much, Melissa, for coming. Let's go ahead and start talking about mRNA vaccines. The first question I really have, you would think that everybody knows how mRNA vaccines work by now, but I, I think it's really complex science for those of us who are non-scientists. So can you give us sort of a general overview of how mRNA vaccines work and how they're different from, let's say, a measles vaccine or a flu vaccine? Sure. And actually, I would disagree. It's actually really simple. It's not complex. And that's one of the things that I hope people can take away from this. So the, the key for any vaccine is that your immune system needs to be able to recognize a potential invader coming in like a virus and remember it and be able prepared to battle that when it, it actually comes in, right? And the way that your immune system recognizes a virus, let's say, is by recognizing something on the outside of the virus. So the outside of viruses are covered with proteins and proteins uh, come in all different shapes and sizes. And uh, they're very uh, unique and specific. So you've everybody's seen the picture of the COVID virus with the spikes out there, right? So it's those spikes. And so what your immune system, what vaccines do is, is train your immune system to recognize one or more of those external uh, surface proteins on the virus. Now, the way that traditional vaccines work, so like the measles or flu vaccines, they're using... Uh, either live attenuated, meaning weakened or dead or killed viruses to train your immune system to do that. The way that the mRNA vaccines work is instead of giving you those proteins already made, what we're doing is just simply providing your body with the instructions in the form of messenger RNA. And in messenger RNA, I just want to make it clear that it's not something that's foreign to your body. It is an essential part of all living organisms. In fact, you've had a lot of it in your own body because it's how your body knows what proteins to make. It's the instructions to make proteins. And so with an mRNA vaccine, instead of giving you a whole virus, we're just giving your body the instructions to make that one or a couple of proteins that you your, your immune system needs to recognize in order to fight off the virus in the future. So we uh, give that the mRNA to you. The mRNA then tells some of your immune cells to make that particular viral protein, not the whole virus, just that one protein, and then display it in such a way that other immune cells can learn to recognize it and then develop antibodies and, and, and other responses like T-cell responses that help you fight off the uh, virus in the future. And this is the first mRNA vaccine that we've seen for like 
that has been out for people to be able to use. Is there a reason why, I know that the technology has been developed for a long time. Is there a reason why COVID-19 was a good candidate for the first mRNA vaccine? Well, I think there were two things happening. <laughs> so we and other companies were working, have been working on mRNA vaccines for quite a long time. In fact, what I like to tell people is uh, think about an Olympic athlete that's in the uh, starting blocks for a race. Now we see them their race and we marvel at how quickly they run that race. But we inherently know that in order to be in those starting blocks, they had to put years of training in in order to get there. And so it was those years of training and, and in Moderna's case, 10 years of work, hard work that we put into to getting the technology ready. And we were actually already in clinical trials that were going on for a number of other viruses like flu and cytomegalovirus. And uh, we were making a vaccine against Zika and various things, but they they hadn't um, yet finished their clinical trials. And so that's why people hadn't heard about it, but we were actually in clinical trials. Thank goodness we had done that because we happened to be in the starting blocks right when COVID-19 showed up. If COVID-19, and we were prepared, and if COVID-19 had showed up like two years earlier, we wouldn't have been ready. We, you wouldn't have seen the rapid response, but it's because we we had already put in all the work. We were already in clinical trials for other viruses. The other thing that was key about the coronavirus is that we had been working, collaborating for several years with, uh, with Anthony Fauci's group, and Barney Graham at um, the part of NIH called NIAID. They're the, the part of NIH that deals with infectious disease. And there's a group there, Barney Graham's group, that studies coronaviruses. And they had actually already, you know, we had been working with them on some previous coronaviruses, and we knew exactly which protein of the virus would give the best immune response, this spike protein. And because the the known coronaviruses, there were, if you remember, there was one called SARS, um, and there was another one called MERS. They they came several years ago, and so we had studied those, um, and particularly the work done at NIH, and shown that if you made the spike protein, that that was the key to making a good vaccine. So the reason that we were able to make the vaccine so quickly is we already knew exactly which protein to use. And we just needed the sequence for the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And we could immediately then put that into production. And so the, the other thing that I think is a great story, we actually were in discussions with NIH and Anthony Fauci and Barty Graham's team in late November, early December of 2019 about whether or not we should do a dress rehearsal because they and we had recognized that mRNA was the perfect uh, way to make a vaccine uh, that was very quickly, um, that gave very good neutralizing antibodies and very good immune responses in case a pandemic showed up. And so as part of pandemic preparedness, we were actually going to do a dress rehearsal. We were literally in talks about which virus should we do. And COVID-19 showed up right at that moment. And it wasn't a dress rehearsal anymore. Yeah, COVID-19 said, you know, hey, how about we just start the show, which was not kind of it, but I'm, I'm glad that you were getting a show ready, even if it was for a dress rehearsal. And I do wonder, you know, looking at mRNA, looking at how quickly a, a vaccine can be developed, 
what sort of other viruses are good candidates for an mRNA vaccine? So, so sort of what makes a virus a good candidate for it, this type of vaccine? Well, basically, anytime that you have knowledge, and so it, it requires having advanced knowledge of what part of the virus to target to what, so what viral protein should we tell the human body to make in order to get a really good immune response? And so the viruses that are currently good targets for mRNA vaccines are where we have that fundamental knowledge. Uh, and that comes a lot of times out of academic research labs or clinical research labs trying to understand that just the structures of viruses and and what, what the immune system will recognize. That said, there are a lot of viruses where we already have that fundamental knowledge. So we are uh, working on uh, uh, newer versions of the flu vaccines, of respiratory syncytial virus, of COVID-19. There's another virus that's been on the CDC uh, wish list for a long time, which is cytomegalovirus. And cytomegalovirus is a different kind of virus. It's not an RNA virus like the coronaviruses. It has a DNA genome. So it's a herpes virus family, but it, when women get infected with cytomegalovirus when they're pregnant, they can, it can cause birth defects in the, their unborn child and particularly uh, hearing loss. So it's very, it's, it's one of the major um, causes of, of congenital uh, deafness in young, in newborn children. That particular virus, the part of it, the, the protein where the immune system needs to attack is actually not just one protein, it's six different proteins that all have to come together, or five proteins that all have to come together, plus another one that's a little off by itself. And that was very difficult to make a a vaccine to by other mechanisms. So one of the things that you can do with mRNA vaccines is actually make vaccines to very complicated protein structures that are more than one protein. So in the case of the coronavirus or or SARS-CoV-2, we could just make the spike protein and we just need to send in one messenger RNA. But in the case of cytomegalovirus, which is this um, herpes virus, the part on the outside that the immune system needs to recognize is five different proteins that come together to form a complex. And that was very difficult to make by other means. We People hadn't been able to make a vaccine against that. But what we can do is just send in the instructions. So five different messenger RNAs that all are the instruction sets for your body to make these five different proteins. And then your body puts them all together in the right conformation or the right configuration for the immune system to, to then get a, an immune response to cytomegalovirus. Uh, So that's one of the things I think is really exciting is that we can actually now create vaccines to viruses that we we weren't able to uh, make vaccines to before. So I I just want to do a real quick follow up. Um, on the, so I understand that's on CDC's wish list, but on my wish list and every other mom in the world is norovirus. Mm-hmm. So can <laughs> I just put in a request for n- norovirus? <laughs> um, I think that's on uh, definitely on my wish list too. I mean, one of the things that's not something that that at Moderna we've talked about externally about whether we're working on, but but uh, certainly it's on the wish list. I, you know, I think the other one that I'd love to see is just common cold virus. Right. But some of these viruses mutate so quickly, it's very hard. And so trying to figure out 
how to make a vaccine against um, something where the virus can't mutate around it. And so that that's there's a lot of people working on that problem right now. You almost make it sound like the the potential is limitless with these va- with these kinds of uh, vaccines. Are there limitations to what we can feasibly do? And you know, you mentioned viral illnesses. Is our bacterial illnesses a possibility, or is uh, the absolutely. nature of mRNA? So uh, Lyme disease, for example, is a bacterial illness, and that's something that is uh, being worked on by us and by others. Yes. So it's really not just about viruses, but any kind of invader. Where, where your immune system can recognize a protein on the outside of that uh, infectious agent and then attack it. And so then we just need to give the body the instructions to make that the, that or those proteins to, so that they can, there can be an advanced warning to your immune system so it remembers. So I wonder, uh, one of the things that we know about the COVID-19 mRNA vaccines is that there is a certain waning immunity involved in them. Is that a feature of all mRNA vaccines or is that particular to COVID-19 for some reason? So, you know, that's a question we get a lot. And because the COVID-19 vaccine is the first, the vaccines are the first mRNA vaccines, it's hard to say that, right? But, and, and again, I will give you my scientific opinion, but the data are still out on this. I think I don't think it's going to be about mRNA vaccines. These are these are respiratory viruses that mutate quite rapidly. The other thing that we I think need to focus on now is not so much does the vaccine prevent you from getting sick at all. What's really important is do the vaccines keep you from getting seriously ill and keep you out of the hospital? And I think that they're standing up the the, the test of time. I myself had COVID. And when I had it, it, because I've been well vaccinated, it was like a, you know, it wasn't pleasant. It was, but it was like a bad head cold and it definitely didn't, I didn't have to go to the hospital. And so I think that's what we really need to focus on now. But one of the things about viruses is you can think about the latency period of viruses. And that means how long after you got exposed, does it take the virus to start replicating in your body and making you sick, Right. And some viruses like measles have a very long latency period. So let's hold on to that thought for a second. And let me talk a little bit about how your immune system works to help you remember an exposure. So when you first get exposed to a infectious agent or you get a vaccine, it's the same thing, you're getting exposed, then your immune system, it takes it a while to start making antibodies. And also, and antibodies are floating around in your blood and they recognize that infectious agent and help other cells, you know, get rid of it. But there's also this thing called the cytotoxic T cell response. And so T cells are another kind of immune cell in your body and they don't make antibodies, but what they recognize are your cells that are infected by the virus and they're the viral factories and your T cells are, you know, getting rid of those viral factories. So they they actually kill off your own cells that are that are making virus. So you've got this two-pronged thing. Once the virus is in your blood, then the antibodies can recognize it and the T cells are trying to kill off your cells that have been taken over by the virus and are making new virus. So you have this initial early response and, and you make a lot of those T cells, you make a lot of those antibodies. 
And then if you do a boost, so that's the the prime and the boost dose, then then that actually boosts it further. So that's why we want to do that. But your body can't just continue making all this stuff all the time because think about all the things that you were exposed to over the course of your lifetime. And so if you're constantly making all of these weapons, you're you just can't do it, right? So what happens is that over time you, the your body sort of stops making the antibodies and it, and they go down, but you have a memory response. So some of those cells that were making the antibodies go into kind of hibernation. They're called memory cells and they're just hanging out, but they're not really making a lot of antibody, but their job is to, when you are next exposed to that infectious agent to be able to ramp things up more quickly than the first time, right? But it takes some time for them to ramp up and be pumping because uh, they have to to replicate themselves. They have to like make a whole new army and then pump out a lot more antibody. So once the initial response of antibodies has waned, then if you're exposed to that infectious agent, that virus, your memory response will kick in and again, ramp up, but it takes some time. So that means that you might get sick initially, but you're, as soon as your memory response ramps up, it's going to take care of it. Um, so, but you're not prevented from getting completely sick. So now let's go back to, and I know it's a long answer, I'm sorry, but let's go back to the measles. Now measles has a long latency period. So it's maybe, you know, 19 days. And so that gives your memory cells plenty of time to ramp up and get the army going before the virus itself gets going. Problem with respiratory viruses is they have a very short latency period. And so you're, you don't have time for your memory response to kick into full gear before the virus starts making you sick. And so that's why you still get, you can still get ill, but you you still have that protection of the vaccine because it'll ramp up and and kick in before you get really really sick, um, and and so that's the the story in my opinion from my scientific perspective. And I think a lot of people don't realize because they don't pay they a lot of people have not paid attention to vaccines until the last couple of years, and they don't realize that this is true about other vaccines. They don't realize that it's true that we talk about like how much does this vaccine limit transmission? How much does this vaccine limit transmission? How much does it keep you from getting sick versus stay at the hospital? That's a discussion you have with all the vaccines that are on the schedule. Right. Um, so when it comes to this, and then suddenly they think, you know, vaccines are fantastic, yes, but are they perfect? They've never been perfect. And then they see that this vaccine isn't perfect and think that this is a strike against it. And it's it's not. What I want to know then, we kind of talked about this already, but I want to know what vaccines are under development. What can you tell us that you're particularly enthusiastic about uh, that's coming down the line in terms of the mRNA? Well, vaccine? one of the things I'm particularly enthusiastic about is that CM, that cytomegaly yeah, that vaccine vaccine I was telling yes. you about, uh, because that just is, is something where we don't have vaccines. You know, there's there's over 225 different viruses that infect humans, and we only have vaccines to about 25 of them. Sure. So one of the things that we're excited about is now being able to make vaccines to uh, many more viruses. And we're trying to pull in 
a lot of academic uh, collaborators to help us with that. We have a whole new program called mRNA Access, where we're making our uh, mRNA and our formulated mRNA available to academic researchers to find the best designs for making vaccines to all different kinds of viruses. And so, and once we have that that knowledge in place, then we can rapidly ramp up to, to respond to things. But it, something else I'm really excited about is a, these combo vaccines. So who wants to get multiple shots in their arms? I just this week got my COVID booster in one arm and my flu booster in another. And you know, not fun. Wouldn't it be better if you could have a combination vaccine where you're just getting one shot that takes care of a bunch of things? And so all of us should be getting our flu boosters every year. We we often don't because we don't like that. And we're actually hoping that the mRNA vaccines for flu will be more efficacious than current ones because we can actually make the vaccine closer to flu season. So we know what variant of the flu will be circulating. But anyway, we're working on a vaccine that we internally call the Whopper. And it is uh, a pan-respiratory vaccine specifically (laughs) for the older populations. I hate to say elderly because I'm about to enter that definition myself. So, but for older adults, the three viruses that really cause a lot of problems are COVID, so SARS-CoV-2, flu, and then uh, respiratory syncytial virus. Mm. And those three together. And so what we're trying to do is develop a vaccine where we would combine all of those into Mm. one shot. So I think that's going to be really helpful. Uh, So I'm a pediatrician and we see a lot of RSV. So I hope that that is in the works for the younger ages as well. That would make my job so much easier. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so we are, we all are so in clinical trials now for an RSV vaccine for pediatric use. Absolutely. Ah, um, music to my ears. So we, we have um, just an incredible number of different vaccines in the pipeline at this point, but those are the ones I'm really excited about. So one of the things that we hear as people who do vaccine advocacy is how evil and terrible pharmaceutical companies are. And I have to say that none of what you've talked about has sounded evil and terrible yet. And so I think I'm, I'm guessing there isn't anything evil or terrible in you. Just looking at you as a human being, you <laughs> look like not at all evil and terrible. I also know, having spoken to many scientists, that a lot of people get into vaccine work because they really want to save lives and public health work is different than say being an oncologist because if you're an oncologist you can point to somebody and say i i helped save that person's life by you know making them cancer free if you do the work that you do you can't point at any one person and say i saved that person's life with a covid-19 vaccine With that in mind, this question is really sort of in that philosophical vein, and that is, do you think that mRNA technology has the potential to make that work, that that ambitious, aspirational, big-hearted work that public health people do even better? Oh, absolutely. I mean, so first of all, I should say that the estimates that I've heard, and they're probably on the low end, is that the the mRNA vaccines for SARS-CoV-2 have saved over 22 million lives. 
And I think we could look around and probably point to a few people and say, yeah, probably it saved your life. So, and that was extremely gratifying to be in, in that position, to be able to, to do something that quickly to help that many, um, to help, you know, the entire planet. So in terms of uh, is mRNA technology, to what extent will it transform healthcare, both preventative and therapeutic? Is that is that what you're asking me? Yes. One of the things that is really exciting about mRNA is that it's not just, we can use it not just to make vaccines, but we can also use it to make medicines to treat people so that already have disease. Let me give you two examples that are really things that we have in clinical trials right now and are looking very promising. One is, it's another kind of vaccine, but in this case, it's instead of it being a prophylactic vaccine, which means to prevent something from happening, it's a therapeutic vaccine and it's, and it's cancer vaccines. So uh, imagine, you know, you might've heard that one of the big advances in cancer treatment recently was the immuno-oncology uh, or, or getting ramping up the immune system to, to um, attack the cancers. Because, because what cancers do a lot is they actually have signals or proteins on their surface that tell, they're called don't eat me signals. They, they tell the immune system, don't attack me. I'm good. I'm don't, I'm, there's nothing to see here, right? And so the checkpoint inhibitors they, what they're what they do is they turn off that signal and allow the immune system to to attack the cancer. But imagine that actually don't have to imagine it. What we're doing is we can take a person's a sample of their tumors and we can take their normal blood sample and compare the the genetic information that's in those two because tumors have a lot of mutations in them compared to your normal cells, and then we can figure out which of those mutations might be made into proteins that the cancer is expressing that's not in your normal tissue. And then we can make a vaccine, an mRNA vaccine that has the instructions to make uh, little pieces of those proteins um, that are specific to your cancer, and then give you that vaccine to then tell your immune system, yeah, these are bad, go attack those cells that are making that. And so this is something that we're, we've been working on with Merck for a number of years. And it's really, a, it, we're about to, to go into the next phase of, of the clinical trials. But another application is to give people back, suppose somebody's born without the ability to make a protein that they need. And so when you ate your lunch today, just think about what everything that has to happen with that food, your body has to digest that food and break it down into the component parts and then rebuild things for you. All of that process involves lots of different proteins that your body makes that catalyze those chemical reactions. Well, there are a lot of folks who are born without the ability to make one of those catalysts, those enzymes. And so they can't digest, either can't digest their food properly or they can't store sugar, they can't maintain their blood sugar levels and stuff. And so right now, these rare disease patients, they're called metabolic diseases. They don't really have any treatments that what they, all they can do is try to manage their symptoms with diets and things. But what we can do with mRNA is give them the instructions back to make those proteins. And so therefore now enable them to do those chemical reactions correctly. And so we've recently just um, reported some early stage clinical trial data on uh, one of our, the rare diseases called propionic acidemia, where these patients are missing a particular enzyme. And it's 
looking very promising. They, the patients have been treated over and over again for over a year and are having much, the, cl- the clinical uh, indicators are that they're, they're actually healthier than they were. So it's very exciting because there's just so many different things we can do now with uh, that we've developed this technology. And, you know, we can start thinking about medicines just for one person. It's just amazing. I, I mean, as a, as a scientist it, and, and as something I've studied mRNA my entire scientific career, you, you can see, I mean, people on the online can't see me, but you can, just how exciting it is to think about the future and our ability to personalize medicine and really treat critical unmet needs that haven't been able to be treated in any other way. It really is amazing. And yeah, I mean, your enthusiasm is really contagious about that. Thank you so much for joining us today. I just want to say that not only are you an incredible scientist, but you're a really good teacher. I feel like I learned so much just listening to you. And I'm so grateful that you were able to join us today. Well, I just want to thank you. And I just want to maybe take one second to plug my TED talk. So if you're interested, I gave a TED talk in April and it's online. Um, and if you're interested in some of the other applications of mRNA medicines, please go look for my TED talk. Fabulous. And if you send me that link, I'll put it in the show notes too. Absolutely. Thank you all of you for joining us today, having this conversation. We're so glad to have you. If you haven't had the chance to get your flu shot or your booster yet, yeah. go in. Go do get it. it. You know, I want to say, like, we, I, this is definitely an earlier flu season. I've seen some cases of pretty significant influenza, like more severe even than I often will see um, in kids. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, it's already almost Halloween, so you really ought to be getting your flu shot on board by now anyway. But if you're waiting at all, I would not. This is, if any year is a good year to get your flu shot done, uh, early, this is a year to do it. You heard it here first. Actually, you probably <laughs> didn't hear it first. No, you probably, probably heard that already. All right. I'm Karen Ernst. I am the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. You can find us at voicesforvaccines.org. You can also find us on your phone. If you go to your app store and do a search for Voices for Vaccines, you can download our app. So go do that. And I'm Nathan Boonstra, general pediatrician here. I'm at Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa, uh, chair of iowaimmunizes.org. And if you want to find me on Twitter, please do. I'm at PedsGeekMD. And it's a shame that I'm never going to get to see Nathan again because we're building a wall on the southern Yeah, I'm sorry. It was nice knowing you. Oh, well. (laughs) All right. Thanks, all. Thanks.